0: Welcome to Volume 2 of How Right You Are, Jeeves. Chapter 3 Well, as I was saying, I had several times when under the influence of her oomph taken up with Roberta Wickham, the idea of such a merger, but—and here is the point I would stress—I could have sworn that on each occasion she had declined to cooperate, and that in a manner which left no room for doubt regarding her views— I mean to say, when a girl at a good man's heart laughs like a bursting paper bag and tells him not to be a silly ass, the good man is entitled, I think, to assume that the whole thing is off. In the light of this announcement of the times, I can only suppose that on one of these occasions, unnoticed by me, possibly because my attention had wandered, she must have drooped her eyes and come through with a murmured, Right ho! Though when this could have happened, I didn't have the foggiest!' It was accordingly, as you will readily imagine, a Bertram Worcester with dark circles under his eyes and a brain threatening to come apart at the seams who break Sport's model on the following afternoon at the front door of Brinkley Court. A Bertram who, in a word, was asking himself what the dickens all this was about. Nonplussed, more or less, sums it up. It seems to me that my first move must be to get hold of my fiancée and see if she had anything to contribute in the way of clarifying the situation. As is generally the case at country houses, on a fine day, there seemed to be nobody about. In due season, the gang would assemble for tea on the lawn, but at the moment I could spot no friendly native to tell me where I might find Bobby. I proceeded therefore to roam hither and thither about the grounds and methwages in the hope of locating her, wishing I had a couple of bloodhounds to aid me in my task for the Travers Domain is a spacious one, and there was a considerable amount of sunshine above, though none I need scarcely mention in my heart. And I was tooting along a mossy path, with the brow a bit wet with honest sweat, when there came to my ears the unmistakable sound of somebody reading poetry to someone. And the next moment I found myself confronting a mixed twosome who had dropped anchor beneath a shady tree in what is known as a leafy glade. They had scarcely swum into my ken when the welkin started ringing like billy This was due to the barking of a small dachshund, who now advanced on me with the apparent intention of seeing the colour of my insides. Milder counsels, however, prevailed, and on arriving at the journey's end, he merely rose like a rocket and licked me on the chin, seeming to convey the impression that in Bertram Worcester he had found just what the doctor ordered. I have noticed before in dogs this tendency to form a beautiful relationship immediately on getting within sniffing distance of me. Something to do, no doubt, with the characteristic was to smell, which for some reason seems to speak to their deeps. I tickled him behind the right ear and scratched the base of his spine for a moment or two. Then, these civilities concluded, I switched my attention to the poetry group. It was the male half of the sketch who had been doing the reading. A willowy bird of about the tonnage and general aspect of David Niven, with ginger hair and a small moustache. As he was unquestionably not Aubrey Upjohn, I assumed that this must be Willie Cream, and it surprised me a bit to find him dishing out verse. One would have expected a New York playboy, widely publicized as one of the lads, to confine himself to prose, and dirty prose at that. But no doubt these playboys have their softer moments. His companion was a well stacked young featherweight who could be none other than the Phyllis Mills of whom Kipper had spoken. Nice but goofy, Kipper had said, and a glance told me he was right. One learns as one goes through life to spot goofiness in the other sex with an unerring eye, and this exhibit had a sort of mild soul's awakening kind of expression which made it abundantly clear that, while not a super-goof like some of the female goofs I had met, she was certainly quite goofy enough to be going on with. Her whole aspect was that of a girl who, at the drop of a hat, would start talking baby talk. This she now proceeded to do, asking me if I didn't think that Poppet, the dachshund, was a sweet little doggy-doggy. I assented rather austerely, for I prefer the shorter form more generally used, And she said she supposed I was Mrs. Travers' nephew, Bertie Worcester, which, as we know, was substantially the case. I've heard you were expected today. I'm Phyllis Mills, she said. And I said I had divined as much and that Kipper had told me to slap her on the back and give her his best. And she said, oh, Reggie Herring, he's a sweetie pie, isn't he? And I agreed that Kipper was one of the Sweetie Pies and not the worst of them, and she said, Yes, he's a lambikin's. This duologue had, of course, left Wilbur Cream a bit out of it, just painted on the backdrop, as you might say, and for some moments knitting his brow, plucking in his moustache, shuffling his feet and allowing the limbs to twitch. He had been giving abundant evidence that, in his opinion, three was a crowd, and that what the Leafy Glade needed to make it, all that a Leafy Glade should be, was a complete absence of Worcester's. Taking advantage of a lull in the conversation, he said, Are you looking for somebody? I replied that I was looking for Bobby Wickham. I'd go on looking if I were you. Bound to find her somewhere. Bobby! said Phyllis Mills. She's down at the lake fishing. Then what you do? said Wilbert Cream, brightening. "Is follow the path, bend right, sharp left, bend right again, and there you are you can't miss start at once is my advice i must say that related as i was by ties of blood in a manner of speaking to this leafy glade was a bit thick being practically bounced from it by a mere visitor but aunt dahlia had made it clear that the cream family must not be thwarted or put upon in any way so i did as he suggested picking up the feet without anything in the nature of back chat as i receded i could hear in my rear the poetry breaking out again The lake at Brinkley calls itself a lake, but when all the returns are in, it's really more a sort of a young pond, big enough to mess about on in a punt, though, and for the use of those wishing a punt, a boat house had been provided, with a small pier or landing stage attached to it. On this rod in hand, Bobby was seated, and it was for me the work of an instant to race up and breathe down the back of her neck. Hey, I said. Hey to you with knobs on, she replied. Oh, hello, Bertie. You hear? You never spoke a truer word. If you can spare a moment of your valuable time, young Roberta. Half a second. I think I've got a bite. No, false alarm. What were you saying? I was saying... Oh, by the way, I heard from Mother this morning. I heard from her yesterday morning. I was kind of expecting you would. You saw the thing in the times. With naked eye. Puzzled you for a moment, perhaps. For a few moments... Well, I'll tell you all about that. The idea came to me in a flash. You mean it was you who shoved that communique in the journal? Of course. Why? I said, getting right down to it in my direct way. I thought I had it there, but no. I'm paving the way for Reggie. I passed a hand over my fevered brow. Something seems to have gone wrong with my usually keen hearing, I said. It sounds just as if you were saying I was paving the way for Reggie. I was. I was making his path straight. Softening up mother on his behalf. I passed another hand over my FB. Now you seem to be saying softening up mother on his behalf. That's what I was saying. It's perfectly simple. I'll put it in words of one syllable for you. I love Reggie. Reggie loves me. Reggie, of course, has two syllables, but I let it go. Reggie who? Reggie Herring. I was amazed. You mean old Kipper? I wish you wouldn't call him Kipper. I always have, dash it. I said with some warmth. If a fellow shows up at a prep school on the south coast of England with a name like Herring, what else do you expect his playmates to call him? How do you mean you love him and he loves you? You never even met him. Of course I've met him. We were at the same hotel in Switzerland last Christmas. I taught him how to ski. She said, a dreamy look coming into her twin star-like eyes. I shall never forget the day I helped him unscramble himself after he had taken a toss on the beginner's slope. He had both legs wrapped around his neck. I think that is when love dawned. My heart melted as I sorted him out. You didn't laugh? Of course I didn't laugh. I was all sympathy and understanding. For the first time, the thing began to seem plausible to me. Bobby is a fun-loving girl and the memory of her reaction when in the garden at Skelding's I had once stepped on the teeth of a rake and had the handle jump up and hit me on the tip of the nose was still laid away among my souvenirs. She had been convulsed with mirth. If then she had refrained from guffawing when confronted with the spectacle of Reginald Herring with both legs wrapped around his neck, her emotions must have been very deeply involved. Well, all right, I said. I accept your statement that you and Kipper are that way, but why, that being so, did you blazon it forth to the world, if blazoning forth of the expression, that you were engaged to me? I told you. It was to soften up Mother. Which sounds to me like delirium straight from the sick bed. You don't get the subtle strategy? Not by several parasangs. Well, you know how you stand with Mother. Yes, our relations are a bit distant. She shudders at the mention of your name, Bertie. So I thought, if she thought I was going to marry you, then found out I wasn't, she'd be so thankful for the merciful escape I'd had that she'd be ready to accept someone, anyone, as son-in-law. Even someone like Reggie, who, though a wonder man, hasn't got his name in debrett and isn't any too hot financially. Mother's idea of a mate fit for me has always been a well-to-do millionaire or a duke with a large private income. Now do you follow? Oh yes, I follow all right. You've been doing what Jeeves does, studying the psychology of the individual. But do you think it'll work? It's bound to. Let's take a parallel case. Suppose your Aunt Dahlia read in the paper one morning that you were going to be shot at sunrise. It couldn't be. I'd never get up that early. Well, suppose she did. She'd be pretty worked up about it, wouldn't she? Extremely one imagines, for she loves me dearly. I'm not saying her manner towards me doesn't verge at times on the brusque. In childhood days she would occasionally clump me on the side of the head, and since I have grown to riper years, she has more than once begged me to tie a brick around my neck and go and drown myself in the pond in the kitchen garden. Nonetheless, she loves her Bertram, and if she heard I was to be shot at sunrise, she would, as you say, be as sore as a gumboil. But why? What's that got to do with it? Well... Suppose she then found out it was all a mistake, and it wasn't you but somebody else who was to face the firing squad. That would make her happy, wouldn't it? One can picture her dancing all over the place, on the tips of her toes. Exactly. She'd be so all over you that nothing you did would be wrong in her eyes. Whatever you wanted to do would be all right with her. Go to it, she would say. And that's how Mother will feel when she learns I'm not marrying you after all. She'll be so relieved. I agreed, that the relief would, of course, be stupendous. But you'll be giving her the inside facts in a day or two, I said, for I was anxious to have assurance on this point. A man with an engagement notice in the Times hanging over him cannot but feel uneasy. Well, call it a week or two. No sense in rushing things. You want me to sink in, eh? Yes, that's the idea. And meanwhile, what's the drill? Do I kiss you a good deal from time to time? No, you don't. right ho Just wanted to know where I stand. An occasional passionate glance will be quite ample, thank you. It shall be attended to. Well, I'm delighted about you and Kipper, or you would prefer that I say Reggie. There's nobody I'd rather see you centre-isling with. It's very sporting of you to take it like this. Oh, don't give it a thought. I'm awfully fond of you, Bertie. Me too, of you. But I can't marry everybody, can I? I wouldn't even try. Well, now that we've got all of that straight, I suppose I'd better be going and saying, Come aboard, Aunt Dahlia. What's the time? Close to five. Oh, I must run like a hare. I'm supposed to be presiding at the tea table. You? Why you? Your aunt's not here. She found a telegram when she got back yesterday saying that her son, Bonzo was sick of a fever at his school and raced off to be with him. She asked me to be deputy hostess for her till she returns. But I shan't be able to for the next few days. I've got to dash back to Mother. Ever since she saw that thing in the Times, she's been wiring me every hour on the hour to come home for a round table conference. What's a guffin? I don't know. Why? That's what she keeps calling you in her latest gram. Quote, Cannot understand how you could be contemplating marrying that guffin. Close quote. I suppose it's more or less the same as a Gabby, which was how you figured in one of her earlier communications. That sounds promising. Yes, I think the thing's in the bag. After you, Reggie will come to her like rare and refreshing fruit. She'll lay down the red carpet for him. And with a brief whoopee, she shot off in the direction of the house at forty or so miles per hour. I followed more slowly, for she had given me much food for thought, and I was musing. Strange, I was thinking, the strong pro-kipper sentiment in the Wickham bosom. I mean, consider the facts. With her looks, which were tops, she had been pretty extensively wooed in one quarter or another for years, and no business had resulted. So it was generally assumed that only something extra special in the way of suitors would meet her specifications, and that whoever eventually got his nose under the wire would be a king among men and pretty warm stuff. And then she had gone and signed up with Kipper Herring. Mind you, I'm not saying a word against old Kipper. Salt of the earth. But nobody could have called him a knockout in the way of looks. Having gone in a lot for boxing in his earliest years, he had the cauliflower ear of which I had spoken to Aunt Dahlia, and in addition to this, a nose which some hidden hand had knocked slightly out of straight. He would, in short, have been an unsafe entrant to have backed in a beauty contest even if the other competitors had been Boris Karloff, King Kong, and Oofy Prosser of the drones. But then, of course, one had to remind oneself that looks aren't everything. A cauliflower ear can hide a heart of gold, as in Kipper's case it did, his being about as gold as they come. His brain, too, might have helped to do the trick. You can't hold down an editorial post on an important London Weekly paper without being fairly well fixed with the little grey cells. And Girls admire that sort of thing, and one had to remember that most of the bimbos to whom Roberta Wickham had been giving the bird through the years had been of the hunting, shooting, and fishing types, fellows who had more or less shot their boat after saying a what" and slapping their leg with a hunting crop. Kipper must have come as a nice change, still the whole thing provided, as I say, food for thought, and I was in what is called a reverie as I had made my way to the house, a reverie so profound that no turf accountant would have given any but the shortest odds against my sooner or later bumping into something. And this, to cut a long story short, I did. It might have been a tree, a bush, or a rustic seat. In actual fact, it turned out to be Aubrey Upjohn. I came upon him round a corner and rammed him squarely before I could put the brakes on. I clutched him around the neck and he clutched me around the middle, and for some moments we tottered to and fro, "'linked in a close embrace. "'Then, the mist clearing from my eyes, "'I saw who it was that I had been treading the measure with. "'Seeing him steadily, and seeing him whole, "'as I have heard Jeeves put it, "'I was immediately struck by the change "'that had taken place in his appearance "'since those get-togethers in his study at Malvern House, "'Bramley-on-the-Sea, "'when, with a singing heart, "'I had watched him reach for the wangy "'and start limbering up the shoulder muscles "'with a few trial swings.' At that period of our acquaintance, he had been an upstanding old gentleman about eight foot six in height, with burning eyes, foam-flecked lips, and flame coming out of both nostrils. He had now shrunk to a modest five foot seven or thereabouts, and I could have felled him with a single blow. Not that I did, of course, but I regarded him without a trace of the old trepidation. It seemed incredible that I could ever have considered this human shrimp a danger to pedestrians and traffic. I think this was partly due to the fact that at some point in the fifteen years since our last meeting, he had grown a moustache. In the Malvern House epoch, what had always struck a chill into the plastic mind had been his wide, bare upper lip, a most unpleasant spectacle to behold, especially when it twitched. I wouldn't say the moustache softened his face, but being of the walrus, or soup-strainer type, it hid some of it, which was all to the good. The upshot was that instead of quailing, as i expected to do when we met i was suave and air. possibly a little too much oh hello up john i said you who who you he responded making it sound like a reverse echo worcester is the name oh worcester he said as if he'd been hoping it would be something else and one could understand his feelings of course No doubt he, like me, had been buoying himself up for years with the thought that we should never meet again, and that whatever brickbats life might have in store for him, he'd at least got Bertram out of his system. A nasty job must have been for the poor bloke having me suddenly pop up from a trap like this. Long time since we last met, I said. Yes. He agreed in a hollow voice that was so plain that he was wishing it had been longer that our conversation flagged, and there wasn't much in the way of feasts of reason and flows of soul as we covered the hundred yards of the lawn to where the tea table awaited us. I think I may have said, nice day, Watt, and that he may have grunted, but nothing more. Only Bobby was present when we arrived at the trough. Wilbert and Phyllis were presumably still in the leafy glade, and Mrs. Cream, Bobby said, worked in her room every afternoon on some new spine freezer and seldom knocked off for a copper. We seated ourselves and had just started sipping when the butler came out of the house, bearing a bowl of fruit, and hove to beside the table with it. When I say butler, I use the term loosely. He was dressed like a butler. He behaved like a butler. But in the deepest and truest sense of the word, he was not a butler. Reading from left to right, he was Sir Roderick Glossop. Chapter 4 At the Drones Club and other places I am accustomed to frequent, you will often hear comment on Bertram Worcester's self-control, or sang-froid, as it's sometimes called, and it is generally agreed that this is considerable. In the eyes of many people, I suppose, i seem one of those men of chilled steel you read about, and I'm not saying I'm not, but it is possible to find a chink in my armour, and this can be done by suddenly springing eminent loony doctors on me in the guise of butlers! It was out of the queue that I could have been mistaken in supposing that it was Sir Roderick Glossop who, having delivered the fruit, was now ambling back to the house. There could not have been two men with that vast bald head and those bushy eyebrows, and it would be deceiving the customers to say that I remained unshaken. The effect the apparition had on me was to make me start violently, and we all know what happens when you start violently while holding a cup of tea! The contents of mine flew through the air and came to rest on the trousers of Aubrey Upjohn, M.A., moistening to no little extent. Indeed, it would scarcely be distorted in the facts to say that he was now not so much wearing trousers as wearing tea. I could see the unfortunate man felt his position deeply, and I was surprised that he contented himself with a mere ouch. But I suppose these solid citizens have to learn to curb the tongue— Creates a bad impression, I mean, if they start blinding and stiffing, as those more happily placed would do. But words are not always needed. In the look he now shot me, I seemed to read a hundred unspoken expletives. It was the sort of look the bucko-mate of a tramp-steamer would give an able-bodied seaman who, for one reason or another, had incurred his displeasure. I see you have not changed since you were with me at Malvern House, he said in an extremely nasty voice dabbing at the trousers of the handkerchief. "'Bungling Worcester, we used to call him.' "'He went on, addressing his remarks to Bobby, "'and evidently trying to enlist his sympathy. "'He could not perform the simplest action, "'such as holding a cup without spreading ruin and disaster on all sides. "'It was an axiom at Malvern House "'that if there was a chair in any room in which he happened to be, "'Worcester would trip over it. "'The child!' Set Aubrey up, John. Is the father of the man. Friendly sorry, I said. Too late to be sorry now. A new pair of trousers ruined. It is doubtful that anything can remove the stain of tea from white flannel. Still one must hope for the best. Whether I was right or wrong at this point in patting him on the shoulder and saying, That's the spirit, I found it difficult to decide. Wrong, probably, for it did not seem to soothe. He gave me another of those looks and strode off, smelling strongly of tea. Shall I tell you something, Bertie?' said Bobby, following him with a thoughtful eye. "'That walking tour that Upjohn was going to invite you to take him on is off. You'll get no Christmas present from him this year, and don't expect him to come and tuck you into bed tonight. I upset the milk jug with an imperious wave of the hand. "'Never mind about Upjohn and Christmas presents and walking tours. What is Pop Glossop doing here as the butler? Ah, I thought you might be going to ask that. I was meaning to tell you sometime. Tell me now! It was his idea. I add her sternly. Bertram Worcester has no objection to listening to drivel, but it must not be pure babble from the cell as this appeared to be. His idea? Yes. Are you asking me to believe that Sir Roderick Glossop... "'got up one morning, gazed at himself in the mirror, "'thought he was looking a little pale, and said to himself, "'I need a change! I think I'll try being a butler for a while!' "'No, not that, but I don't know where to begin.' "'Begin at the beginning! Come on now, young be Wickham, smack into it!' "'I said, and took a piece of cake in a marked manner. "'The austerity of my tone seemed to touch a nerve, "'and kindle the fire that always slept, in this vermilion headed menace to the common weal, but well, she frowned a displeased frown and told me, for heaven's sake, to stop goggling like a dead halibut. I have every right to goggle like a dead halibut, I said coldly, and I shall continue to do so as long as I see fit. I'm under a considerable nervous strain here, as always seems to happen when you are mixed up in the doings of my life. Life has become one damn thing after another, and I think I'm justified in demanding an explanation. I await your statement. Well, let me marshal my thoughts. She did so. And after a brief intermission, during which I finished my piece of cake, proceeded with, I'd better begin by telling you about Upjohn, because it all started through him, you see. He's egging Phyllis on to marry Wilbert Cream. When you say egging... I mean egging. And when a man like that eggs, something has to give, especially when the girl's a pill like Phyllis, who always does what Daddy tells her. No will of her own? Not a smidgen. To give you an instance, a couple of days ago, he took her to Birmingham to see the repertory company's performance of Chekhov's seagull because he thought it would be educational. I'd like to catch anyone trying to make me see Chekhov's seagull, but Phyllis just bowed her head and said, yes, Daddy, didn't even attempt to put up a fight. That'll show you how much of a will of her own she's got. It did indeed. Her story impressed me profoundly. I know Chekhov's seagull. My Aunt Agatha had once made me take her son, Thomas, to see a performance of it at the Old Vic, and what with the strain of trying to follow the cockeyed goings-on of characters called Zetrakhaniah and Metvienko, and having to be constantly on the alert to prevent Thomas from making a sneak for the great open spaces, my suffering had been intense. I needed no further evidence to tell me that Phyllis Mills was a girl whose motto would always be Daddy Knows Best. Wilburton only got to propose, and she would sign on the dotted line because Upjohn wished it. Your aunt's worried sick about it. She doesn't approve? Of course she doesn't approve. Going over to New York so much, you must have heard of Willie Cream. Why yes, news of his escapades has reached me. He's a playboy. Your aunt thinks he's a screwball. Many playboys are, I believe. Well, that being so, one can understand why she doesn't want those wedding bells to ring out, but... I said putting my finger on the res in my unerring way that doesn't explain where Pop Glossop comes in. Yes, it does. She got him here to observe Wilbert. I found myself fogged. Cock an eye at him, you mean? Drink him in, as it were? What good is that going to do? She snorted impatiently. Observe in a technical sense. You know how those brain specialists work. They watch the subject closely, they engage him in conversation, they apply subtle tests and sooner or later, I begin to see sooner or later, he lets fall an incautious word to the effect that he thinks he's a poached egg and then they've got him where they want him. Well, he does something which tips them off. Your aunt was moaning to me about the situation and I suddenly had this inspiration of bringing gloss up here. You know how I get my sudden inspirations. I do. That hot water bottle episode, for example. Yes, that was one of them. Ha! What did you say? Just ha! Why ha? Because when I think of that night of terror, I feel like saying ha! She seemed to see the justice of this. Pausing merely to eat a cucumber sandwich, she continued. So, I said to your aunt, I'll tell you what to do, I said. Get Glossop here, I said, and have him observe Wilbert Cream. Then you'll be in a position to go to Upjohn and pull the rug out from under him. Again, I was not abreast. There had been, as far as I could recollect, no mention of any rugs. How do you mean? Well, isn't it obvious? Rope in old Glossop, I said, and let him observe. Then you'll be in a position, I said, to go to Upjohn and tell him that Sir Roderick Glossop, the greatest alienist in England, is convinced that Wilbert Cream is round the bend, and to ask him if he proposes to marry his stepdaughter to a man who at any moment may be marched off and added to the membership list of Colney Hatch. Even Upjohn would shrink from doing a thing like that. Or oh, don't you think so? I weighed this. Yes, I said. I should imagine you were right. Quite possibly, Upjohn has human feelings, though I never noticed them when I was in statu Popolare. I believe the expression is... One sees now why Glossop is at Brinkley Court. What one doesn't see is why one finds him buttling. I told you that was his idea. He thought he was such a celebrated figure that it would arouse Mrs. Cream's suspicion if he came here under his own name. I see what you mean. She would catch him observing, Wilbert, and wonder why. And eventually put two and two together. And start, hey, what's the big ideeing? exactly no mother likes to find out that her hostess has got a brain specialist down to observe the son who is the apple of her eye it hurts her feelings whereas if she catches the butler observing him she merely says to herself ah an observant butler very sensible with this deal that uncle tom's got on with homer cream it would be fatal to risk giving her the pip in any way she would kick to homer And Homer would draw himself up and say, After what has occurred, Travers, I would prefer to break off negotiations. And Uncle Tom would lose a packet. What is this deal they've got on anyway? Did Aunt Dahlia tell you? Yes, but it didn't penetrate. It's got something to do with some land your uncle owns somewhere. And Mr. Cream is thinking of buying it and putting up hotels and things. It doesn't matter anyway. The fundamental thing... The thing to glue the eye on is that the cream contingent would have to be kept sweetened at any cost. So not a word to a soul. Quite! Bertram Worcester is not a babbler. No spiller of beans is he. But why are you so certain that Wilbert Cream is loopy? He doesn't look loopy to me. Have you met him? Just for a moment, he was in a leafy glade, reading poetry to the mills girl. She took this big. Reading poetry to Phyllis? "'That's right. I thought it odd that a chap like him should be doing such a thing. "'Limericks, yes. If he had been reciting limericks to her, I could have understood it. "'But this was stuff from one of those books they bind in limp purple leather and sell at Christmas. "'I wouldn't care to swear to it, but it sounded to me extremely like Omar Khayyam.' "'She continued to take it big. "'Break it up, Bertie. Break it up. There's not a moment to be lost. "'You must go and break it up immediately.' Who, me? Why me? That's what you're here for, didn't your aunt tell you? She wants you to follow Wilbert Cream and Phyllis about everywhere and see that he doesn't get a chance to propose. You mean that I'm to be a sort of private eye or shamus tailing them up? I don't like this, I said dubiously. You don't have to like it, said Bobby. You just have to do it.